Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So the first thing that I have to tell you is that uh, today's show is being offered in what we call Radio for the Deaf. We have two wonderful American Sign Language interpreters who are here. They are, uh, in fact, interpreting my words right now. Uh, That uh, feed, the video feed of that is going on to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, the Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook. Uh, So if there's anybody that you know who might be interested in actually experiencing experiencing a radio show but is deaf, let that person know. I mean, they can experience it live right now, or it'll be archived there. Might not be the best subject matter to begin this experience. We're <laughs> doing a show about constipation today. I'm I'm feeling really bad for Heidi, who Mary Sue, who's sort of my American Sign Language alter ego. She's used to this stuff. Heidi, it's her first day with us, and we're we're hitting her with some pretty challenging material, shall we say? And this show is kind of an, an example of what. Art Imitating Life, something like that, Uh, just in the sense that we've been talking about. I've wanted to do this show since last year. Last year was the 500th anniversary uh, celebration of Martin Luther. Uh, I'll explain why that's important and relevant as we go along here. But we missed that. We also missed um, National Constipation Month, which is December. Uh, This is in December. Uh, I'm pretty sure. So I, we just had a lot of trouble, trouble getting the show on the air, which, as you as you can see, I don't have to, you know, draw you a map, right? Um, it, it's been a difficult thing to push out this show, and that's, of course, uh, very fitting for the topic. Um, and, and so what we're going to do, we're going to talk about the biology of constipation right now. Then we're going to talk about the psychology of constipation. Um, and we're, we are going to talk about the fact that Martin Luther, and this isn't some, you know, I mean, Martin Luther was... He was out as a constipated man. Uh, he was very uh, open, at least with his intimates, about it and wrote a lot about it uh, in his letters, uh, and it clearly affected his life. It also affected the life of Elvis Presley in terms of probably shortening it. You'll hear about that in our final segment. The final segment's a little bit gross, too. I'm just kind of warning you. <laughs> Um, Even for us, it's a little gross. Uh, But I also think constipation is the thing worth talking about and just talking about it biologically. That's where we're going to begin with Dr. Satish Rao, uh, who is director of the Digestive Health Clinical Research Center at Augusta University in Georgia. Uh, So first of all, uh, Dr. Satish Rao, welcome to our show. Thank you, Colin. So um, this morning, as is often the case, uh, I had had dinner the night before. I got up, I had some breakfast, and then I pooped uh, because I'm not constipated, apparently. Um, but so if, in fact, that didn't happen, and if, in fact, it didn't happen for a few days, what would be most likely be the problem? What would cause me to not do what I regularly do in terms of digestion, digestion and elimination? Very good question, Colin. But before I answer that, let me preempt that by telling you that constipation generally, like you have tried to do, is defined on the basis of infrequent bowel movements. Sure. Now, that is no longer true in, in gastroenterology and in medical circles. 
And I think it is probably a mistake that we as physicians and healthcare providers have made in the past is trying to define constipation-related symptoms based on irregular or infrequent bowel movements. That's, so, yeah. So, now, why is that a mistake? Right. Because constipation includes six symptoms, of which one of them is infrequent bowel movements. Mm-hmm. Constipation also is hard stools. Constipation also is a feeling of incomplete evacuation after what people thought they've had a bowel movement. Constipation also is using digital maneuvers or something to facilitate a bowel movement or feeling a sensation of blockage uh, with bowel movement. Uh, So all of these various symptoms together is now what we define as constipation. And in order for us medically to, to call a patient as constipated, they must have at least two of these six symptoms. Right. And some people... I, I mean, there there are even cultural differences, differences from nation to nation about how often people poop, and there are individual differences. So it would be a mistake to focus inordinately just on the frequency of evacuation. Perfect. You've said it very well. All right. So, And some people have a problem probably from birth, right? Some percentage of people have some underlying congenital condition, which leads to constipation? It does. There is a well-known congenital problem called Hirschsprung's disease, where developmentally there has been a problem in how the nerves connect with the nerves right close to the opening of the gut, the anus area. Because of lack of connection, there's a small segment of the colon or the rectum where there is no nerves, and therefore when stool comes, it comes up to the point, and then it is not... Uh, it does not move beyond the point because of lack of nerve connection. And that is what Hirschsprung's disease is. And that presents usually in children and in infants. And it's often picked up at that stage. And then they need a corrective surgery after which they get better. Um, another aspect of this. Well, I, let's let's talk about a couple of, uh, of things that people probably frequently experience. I have experienced when I travel that suddenly I'm constipated. Suddenly, uh, I can't believe I'm confessing this, but, you know, why not? Why be ashamed of it? So suddenly uh, two, three days go by and nothing. And I feel as though my internal clock is being disrupted somehow, that my body doesn't sort of know what to do. But that's my layman's guess about that. Why would that be happening? I think you've said it very well. You have uh, what I always call as traveler's constipation. Mm -hmm. And or occasional constipation, and that we all suffer from that. And that is because we have now tinkered with our intrinsic biorhythm. And we all have a set biorhythm. Uh, Our biorhythm involves, of course, eating and sleeping and pooping. It's all part of the biorhythm. And when we have interfered with that through travel, not eating the right thing or postponing things that we routinely do in a timely manner, then the gut biorhythm also gets uh, gets off, gets wacky, if you like. And then, you know, things don't happen the same way. And likewise, if you travel in different time zones, that also affects. For example, as you said, you woke up this morning and you had a bowel movement, whatever time, let's say seven, six o'clock in the morning. Um, and now you've, you've gone from here to Europe, okay? Your six o'clock there is going to be, you know, somewhere later part of the day or it's in the midnight, Mm-hmm. and you're sleeping or you're doing some other activity. So you've changed your biorhythm. So that, in turn, will affect 
how the, the body is going to take a few days to regulate itself to the local timing and to the local eating habits. And all of that uh, will contribute to the so-called traveler's constipation, which is occasional. And that we all have. And there are some who have a very acute constipation, which is really some blockage or some major medical catastrophe that's happening. And these are the two rare but infrequent and bothersome types of constipation. The majority of the people, though, they suffer with what we call as chronic constipation, where these symptoms of constipation linger on for days and weeks and months. Right. And so and, and so there's discomfort. Well, I want to come back to that in just a second. Um, to what degree uh, is, does stress play, play a role in this? Obviously, stress, first of all, makes us um, eat less regularly and predictably, sleep less regularly and predictably. I'm assuming stress makes us sometimes poop less regularly and predictably. I think there may be a small role for stress. People have uh, looked at this very, very carefully and systematically, and we've never been able to show a good correlation between stress and the beginning of constipation. What we have found more, uh, more consistently is that once you're constipated, then stress really seems to aggravate the problem, or constipation itself causes so much stress that you're now mixed with constipation and stress as the problem. So there's a, also a school of thought um, that's become more popular here in America recently that says, well, maybe one of the problems is you're just in the wrong position. Sitting down on a chair-shaped toilet maybe is the wrong way to do it. The so-called squatty potty uh, has become more and more popular. Is there anything to that? Absolutely, Colin. Mm-hmm. I fully subscribe to that view. I mean, there is no question that our evolution from this squatting position, that is how we were all pooping in the good old days of our ancestors, to the chair position has compromised our body's ability to poop effectively. No question. I think we have done enough research to show that as well. And I think uh, thanks to this uh, to the squatty potty guys who have really done a yeoman's job in doing it. By the way, I have... I should really get the award because I, I have developed the Squatty Party before these guys developed it and commercialized it. And I've been using it for 25 years in my practice, but I never had the, the business acumen, if you like, <laughs> to go commercially with it. But nonetheless, so coming back to the question, body position has a significant effect on how we move stool, especially through the lower foot of the bowel. Um, the angle in which we push, the, uh, the pushing forces that we generate, and our ability to relax are all ideally designed for the squatting position. And if we don't uh, use the squatting position, we will always be somewhat inefficient in our pooping ability. And that is why the squatty potty has been such a, such a cool thing and really a good thing for people to use. So, so some, and I think one of your terms for this, this sort of falls into the category of dyssynergenic defecation. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but. You have, you have. So I think, you know, in the chronic constipation group, as I mentioned, you know, occasional acute and the chronic, within the chronic constipation group, there are three other overlapping subtypes. One of them is dyssynergic defecation, where the act of pooping has become incoordinated or dyssynergic. And this could be either because the, uh, the, the patient is unable to generate enough pushing force 
or the wrong force, or when they're actually trying to poop, unbeknown to them, they are squeezing and shutting off the anal opening. Or they're doing both. They're pushing incorrectly and they're shutting off. So they may pass a small amount of stool, but the bulk of the stool is probably going back inside and they're totally uncoordinated. In this way, they will never be able to efficiently poop. And that is dyssynergic constipation. Um, you know, later in the show, we're going to hear a journalist talk about some of the reporting that is done about one particular person, Elvis Presley. But within that reporting is the notion that for some people, people who have a really very severe case of constipation, that, that there is considerable danger from it. Um, are there things that, I mean, there might, there, it might be putting stress uh, on the cardiovascular system somehow. Is there anything to that? Well, I think it, the only part that I would say that may have some effect would be, you know, if one tends to strain and push aggressively, when you have the so-called um, increased valsalva kind of maneuver, you can affect the breathing, you can affect the heart, and you can affect the rhythm that regulates the cardiac circulation. So you, you have a certain very uh, sensitive nerves in the neck and when you're using those excessive muscles and so on, you can kind of irritate those um, uh, nerves, sensitive nerves in the neck, and you can produce an arrhythmia. That can cause some damage, or you may lose consciousness, uh, or you may trigger an arrhythmia. That is extremely, extremely, extremely rare, but yes, it can happen. So, but I th it sounds like good advice is, I mean, it's sort of not like having a baby, right? You don't just push harder. Correct. It is not a good idea to push harder. In fact, one has to learn to relax. So there is a very fine coordinated mechanism that is, you know, it is very interesting that we all learn almost serendipitously when we are young. I mean, you know, nobody literally coaches us like, you know, you learn how to write a language or how to speak a language. But here, almost serendipitously, we kind of learn this act because some of it is all inbuilt in, in us as almost a reflex mechanism. But in some people, this learning process has never been perfect, and therefore they suffer with constipation from childhood, and then some of them will grow into adults and they develop dyssynergic defecation and so on and so forth. So there is a little learning process, but it is almost intrinsic. What, what percentage of people just need to eat more fiber? I mean, I, I, if I had constipation, that would be my first thought, but maybe that's an oversimplification. It is. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the fiber story is true, but, you know, the average American takes about seven grams of fiber a day. If so, more than 50, 60 percent or more of Americans should be constipated by that definition, really. And it's not necessarily true. So I think we have overblown the fiber story, but that is not to discount that part. I think we need to be eating between 20 to 30 grams of fiber a day because fiber is the main source of energy and fuel for the bacteria in the colon. And if we don't have a healthy bacteria in the colon, we are never going to produce the right kind of stool that can be emptied from the body. So every part of a body has a function. Fiber has an important role in really developing the right stool. All right, we're going to uh, stop there, although, I mean, I think we've got some very good advice here from Dr. Satish Rao. Uh, push less, squat more. Uh, he is the director of the Digestive Health Clinical Research Center at Augusta University in Georgia. Thank you so much for being on the show today. 
Thank you, Colin. That was wonderful. And uh, after this uh, break, first of all, our interpreters are holding up reasonably well over there, uh, but we're going to challenge them even more with the story of Martin Luther, uh, and we'll be doing a little bit of Freud, too. It's causing so much frustration, this constipation. So last year, amid all the 500th anniversary uh, celebrations and, and contemplations of the legacy of Martin Luther, if you listened carefully, if you kept your ear to the ground, you might have heard some mention of the topic we've been discussing on the show today. Because, in fact, Martin Luther, and this is not a matter that's open to dis- dispute, as you'll, you'll, you'll hear, he did suffer from terrible, terrible, painful, agonizing constipation. Joining us now is one of his biographers, Eric Metaxas. Uh, Eric Metaxas is the author of Martin Luther, The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World. So welcome to the show. Thank you. And I should say up front that literally for the last five centuries, Luther has not moved his bowels even one time. <laughs> it's, it's really incredible. It's a record. Right. Even for him, that's a lot. But six days, yeah. you know, we know from letters and journals and stuff like that, like six days without pooping was something that he was very familiar with in a way that made him very unhappy. He wrote about it a lot, right? One of the first things I wrote, my Luther book came out in October, and you know I was blessed with a, a full-page review in the New York Times, and it's done very, very well. But you are the first person to do the hard work of bringing up the subject of constipation. I'm, I'm grateful to you, Colin. I want to say that right now. <laughs> and, the, and the first thing that I wrote when I was writing this book, and I'm not kidding at all, were the passages on constipation, because I found it so funny, I almost died. I thought... This is hilarious, because he eventually got over this. Everything came out in the end. When I was reading the passages from his letters that he wrote to his friend about the affliction of constipation, I thought, it's comedy gold, because you're writing about a real person, and when you think of him, you think of him as a world changer, one of the most significant, influential figures literally in the history of the world. There's there's absolutely no doubt about that. But he was plagued as we are all plagued, with common ailments. But the way he writes about it in typical Luther fashion, it's very, very colorful. And I just thought, I have to write this before I write the rest of the book, just to keep myself grounded. So he wrote to a number of his friends about this, but here he's writing to uh, Spalatin. Is that how we say that name? Spalatin. Spalatin. I, don't know how, I don't know how Americans say it, yeah. uh, but uh, since I'm half German, I say Spalatin. He says, yeah. Uh, yeah, he says, I tried the pills. Spalatin has gotten him some pills. I tried the pills according to the prescription. Soon I had some relief and elimination without blood or force, but the wound of the previous rupture isn't healed yet, and even I even had to suffer a good deal because some flesh extruded either due to the power of the pill or I don't know what. I'm not even sure, Eric, how to interpret that, but it sounds like his, his relief was so explosive. I can interpret it. it. <laughs> I was afraid of that. I have to use a four-letter word. It's ouch. <laughs> yeah, right. What's so funny about Luther, and, and part of what makes him charming and captivating, is that he is not religious in the sense when we think of religious. He combines talk of God with all seriousness, with the most earthy kind of language, the kind of thing you you see in Chaucer. So at times it's body and really earthy, but part of what makes him fascinating theologically is that he understands that if a Christian is to really get to the core of what the Christian faith is, it's the incarnation. God, 
becomes a human being, and a human being has a body, has to go to the bathroom, like all of this kind of stuff that people had previously said, well, we, we don't talk about that. We're religious. We don't really have bodies. We don't want to have bodies. And so the first thing that I quote in my book on page 244, he's writing to his friend, <laughs> the Lord has afflicted me with painful constipation. But then he gets really graphic and he says, the elimination is so hard that I am forced to press with all my strength, even to the point of perspiration. And the longer I delay, the worse it gets. And it just goes on and on and on. And I laugh because he's so human. It's what makes him, to me, so charming. And it's, it's really why I chose to write this biography, because I said, this guy is so real and so human. He's not some ethereal theological figure. But the idea that he suffered from constipation, and then later in his life, ironically, diarrhea, is to me at the very heart of who he is. Yes, and so at one point, I, I can't remember whether it's that letter or a different one, he says that I am forced to carry with me a piece of the cross. And he clearly means this, that, you know, we can sort of giggle about it, but it sounds like it was just unbelievably horrible. Well, no, that, and that, and, and I right. think he sees it as a piece of the cross, as a kind well, of human we, suffering that connects we, him to Christ. Yeah, we have to be clear. When we say it, he calls it a relic of the cross, and what he means is that in this life, we will experience suffering. And in a weird way, our mm. suffering is meant to remind us of the suffering of Christ. Even this kind of suffering, he says, God is using this to humble me, to make me a better person. I can't be full of myself, so to speak, because I am afflicted just as other people are afflicted. I suffer, and Christ suffered. and stuff. So the fact that he's able to take this most base subject and turn it into the things of higher theology, it is why he is so charming. He's able to speak on the very highest level, but on the most simple human level. And he's actually very funny. I mean, a lot of another reason that I chose to write this book is because he's hilarious. He's very outspoken. People said to me, well, are you going to write about Calvin? Absolutely not. Calvin is not funny. He's, he's not no. larger than life. Luther it really is. Right, now, Calvin didn't do well in the Swiss comedy clubs at all. No, um, no, and, and, and obviously he moved his bowels very effectively, and so where's the comedy there? Right. Now, another thing, now we're sort of going to venture out a little bit onto slightly thinner ice, but but we'll stay on some semi-solid ice at first. In 2004, as you well know, there was the discovery of something that might have been capital T, the capital T toilet, uh, at least in Warburg. And, and yeah. there's a sense... Uh, among Luther scholars, a question about is the fact that he was sitting on the toilet a lot in cloaca, as he would say, yeah. is that a time when he's really thinking about some of this stuff yeah. and having some of these discoveries because he's got nothing else to do while he waits? That's very funny. I l literally devoted a chapter to this in the book because I think that the whole thing hinges on Luther's sense of humor. In the monastery, there was a tower. Luther's office, his study, was on the second floor of the tower, and it was a heated study, and so when, when he kind of was moved up in the ranks, they gave him this heated study, and he would do all this thinking and his writing there. On the first floor, on the ground floor of the tower, I should say, was the cloaca, which is the Latin word for sewer, and it means the bathroom. And so all of the monks and everything would use the cloaca tower, as they called it, to go to the bathroom. So if you had to go to the bathroom, that's where you went. So Luther played on that as a joke and said, I was in the cloaca tower, or he would say, auf, on the cloaca, meaning like sitting on the toilet. So he, he plays with this to sort of say, yeah, maybe I was actually literally sitting on the toilet. But what he really means is that he was in this tower. And so 
the reason he plays on this is I think he wants people to think about what you were just saying and to kind of be ambiguous. He would, you know, he would play with stuff in this way and he would joke around and people misinterpreted him. It's a little bit like Trump. It's kind of weird. Like, you know, he says something hyperbolically for effect and then people parse it as though he was like on the witness stand and, you know, the thing they're reading the stenographer's words. I mean, you have to understand he's half joking, but he's trying to make the larger point that at the very heart of his discovery of grace is that we are human. Jesus became a human being and he came to earth to become one of us with all of our problems and physical ailments in order to pave the way so that we could go to heaven. But we don't go to heaven as ghosts, that we are human beings with bodies. And so it's weird that there's a lot of theology here. And again, in the book, I, I hope I make it clear. But it's, it's really moving and beautiful and at the same time very entertaining. I would even add to that the notion that, and you can even see it in some of the things that he writes, that the Holy Spirit can inform you, infuse you, inspire you, and visit you in almost, under almost any circumstances. Absolutely. And taking no note of where you happen to be sitting or what you happen to be trying that, to that, do. That's the whole point, is that God comes to us wherever we are, and it's not like, oh, I have to be in church, or, oh, I have to be dressed this way or that way. God comes to us in our broken humanity. It's a huge point that he came to earth through a maiden's vagina. Let's not pretend that this happened in some way that was other than the way every one of us enters the world, through blood and pain. And this is a big theological point. And the fact that Luther was willing to write about this 500 years ago, it's pretty dramatic. And I, I would say it speaks to us directly today in a way that a lot of theology does not. All right, now let's go out onto the thinner ice, where I happen to know that you're not entirely happy. Um, there's, even th- there's even thinner ice? Well, there's the, know. yes, there is the, actually, you I and think I... when the ice is this thin, <laughs> it's water, but go ahead. You and I attended the... Uh, same uh, institution uh, of learning in New Haven, Connecticut, where I was uh, fortunate enough to, on one occasion, uh, meet face-to-face Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson and young Martin Luther has uh, a lot of very Ericksonian kind of thinking about this, that he sees, he creates an intellectual model, I guess we would say. Wait a minute, people probably don't realize that in 1958, a very, very, very famous biography of Luther was written by this guy named Eric Erickson. I, in my book, take him to task. I think right. it is a horrible book, one of the worst books, uh, maybe maybe the worst biography of Luther ever written, but it was very influential. Right, and it does bring up the constipation, but but as part of this kind of intellectual model that he has, that somehow or other this cycle between retention and explosion right. has some connection to Luther's genius and ultimate ability to express himself in a transformative right. way. So I, I think that you're it's, not Freudian, it's Freudian quackery, we should laugh at it. It's some of the most ridiculous stuff I have ever read. And the fact that the intellectual climate in the West was such that people took this ridiculous book seriously for decades, and some still do, is really sad. Well, we're going to end there, but Eric Erickson, uh, the book is fascinating. Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world. Eric Metaxas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And so, yes, uh, let me just say a word or two, and not in defense of Eric Erickson, but as we head into the uh, Freudian segment here, I don't entirely agree with Eric Metaxas that there's nothing there. Um, and, and I will quickly tell a story, which is I was taking a class in college from a sociologist named Kai Erickson. And one day we showed up in class and he had a surprise for us, which was that his father, Eric Erickson, was sitting on stage. And, and he did start to talk a lot about anal- anality. And he talked about it very specifically in terms of Nixon. And at a certain point, I'm going to have to reword this, change one word of it. Uh, he was talking about 
Nixon's call to Eisenhower when Eisenhower had not fully settled on Nixon as a running mate. And, and, and Eric Erickson turned to his son and said, what is the polite way of saying poop or get off the pot? Uh, and his son blushed a little bit and he said, fish or cut bait, dad. And he said, that's right. The newspaper said he said fish or cut bait. But I knew what he really said because Nixon was anal. Um, so that stayed with me. That was 1975. Uh, so we certainly do want to um, explore the Freudian part of this. Uh, uh, obviously, Freud is the springboard from which Eric Erickson and a lot of other theorists uh, leap to their own ideas. Uh, Stefan Mariansky is with us, the education director of the Freud Museum in London. Welcome to this fairly unusual conversation. Hi, you're on the Hi. air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on the show. So um, Freud obviously has five stages of development. We're really interested in the middle one. We're interested interested here in the third one. So tell us about that anal stage of development. Yeah, sure. Well, before I do that, Colin, I should say, you know, that the kind of the, the popular psychology Freud 101 is is very much this sort of idea that there are these fixed stages that we all have to pass through the um, oral, the anal, the, the phallic genital, uh, and so on. Um, it doesn't really, it enjoys a lot of prestige in the literature, but it doesn't really seem to be central to Freud's argument. Mm -hmm. um, but what is absolutely clear for Freud is that, um, that this, this, if we could loosely call the anal stage, is for him absolutely central to how uh, a young child develops, and it's going to leave some kind of a, a mark on them that's going to stay with them as they go on into the world. Um, I, I suppose a few primers for the way of for the Freudian way of looking at. Um, uh, 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 constipation is first of all to say that, that, that it, this anal stage uh, toilet training it's it's just it's a uniquely human activity you're not really going to find an example in the animal kingdom of uh, animals that, that toilet train their young uh, with these stages Freud didn't necessarily think that there was a natural biological progression from one stage to the next I think what he was more interested in is that it's really the caregiver who brings these stages into focus so that we could sort of say that you know without uh, uh, weaning there would be no oral stage or that without um, uh, toilet training potty training there would be no anal stage so uh, this anal stage what it's really about is the idea that you know a young child has got it, it, it's just learning to speak it's um, it, it's suddenly having its toilet activities regulated. It's you know it, it can't just poop when it wants. Uh, it's got uh, its, its parents around him giving messages about when's good to do it, when's not to do it. It's got a lot to you know depending you know parenting changes from uh, culture to culture and across history. But um, you know uh, sometimes uh, parents will kind of schedule. That the child has to do it at a certain time, sometimes not. Uh, and there are some very mixed messages the child's going to be receiving. You know, it might be uh, at, at one time kind of greeted almost like a gift mm -hmm. when, when a, a young child poos for, say, its, its mother. And at the same time, that might be kind of inflected with disgust. Uh, uh, being uh, uh, um, Having your nappy changed might turn out to be uh, something that, that the child thinks, well, mum seems to kind of in, enjoy this in some way, but also be kind of disgusted by it. So there's a lot going on in this uh, anal stage. Um, and, uh, and how we navigate that stage, according to Freud, is really going to be quite determinant in the kind of people we grow up to be. 
Right. And it would be reductive to say to, – to reduce anybody to one drama, one trauma. Uh, we're all a symphonic orchestra of the things that mold us and change us. But to the degree that that becomes maybe one of the dominant instruments in that orchestra, uh, obviously that notion of retention that, that you – rather than just kind of letting fly whenever you're ready, that you have to learn to retain this basic bodily function in a way that no other animal does, that uh, you know, in and of itself – depending on how you interact with the toilet trainer, that's going to be a big issue, right? It's going to be a big issue. And one of the reasons it's going to be a big issue is because these are very much uh, impositions, they're rules, they're demands that are uh, coming to a young child from without. So these are are kind of complex and confusing uh, messages that are quite disciplinary sometimes. So uh, quite often uh, a child will produce uh, the poop as a kind of gift for, for the parents, but quite often also they'll be expected to do it and they'll do it against the background of kind of fear for uh, losing th- their, their parents' love. So what you, that might, can we could loosely say that might set up a sort of character trait of someone who in, in all kinds of other more metaphorical ways might kind of be very preoccupied with giving other people what they want and kind of uh, giving into their demands, but at the same time, perhaps holding on to a certain resentment that they want something that can't be given, you know, the, the sort of typical uh, complaints that, that, that uh, we hear about in the literature, you know, everyone wants a piece of me. Well, you know, you've got to wonder what piece that might be. Um, if uh, I'm constipated, uh, there are a dozen or so good reasons, a number of them purely medical, structural, biological. Uh, but if I'm in Freudian therapy and I mentioned to my therapist that I'm constipated, uh, I assume oh, that's, that's a, a source of some interest about my possible neurosis? Um, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, well done, because I think very few uh, – uh, people actually uh, directly talk about their sort of bowel movements to their to their analysts, and as soon as they do that, um, quite often things things really uh, uh, start to change for them. Um, but I suppose it also comes with the kind of uh, the, the kind of Freudian question is always going to be not only kind of about uh, uh, the, the kind of difficulties someone might have with their bowel movements, uh, but it might also be to ask a question like, you know, in what other ways, in what other more metaphorical ways is someone constipated in their life? I mean, um, uh, I mean, we, we were, you were talking about Martin Luther earlier, and I just found it so interesting. I, I don't know much about Martin Luther, but isn't isn't his sort of major theological complaint that the church is on everyone's backs, making unreasonable demands on them, denying them access to something sublime? Um, you, you find that in not only in people's sort of uh, sort of pooping practices, but you also find it in things like people's preoccupation with money. Uh, and you find that quite often in sort of inflections in figures of speech. And why do we talk about making money? Right. Why do we why do we make money? Um, and you know, uh, you, you mentioned also about um, your internal clock earlier. I mean, uh, this is, in a sense, a kind of preoccupation with time. When is the right time to do the thing that I need to do? Uh, and so you often find people, um, you know, putting off uh, doing, you know, procrastinating because they uh, kind of want to hold onto the idea of a future triumph, um, and that might you know, turn out to be related to, to their sort of 
anal stage. Right. We're going to have to stop there, although I can't wait to come to the museum now. I also have to say that that whole, the whole notion of money uh, and excrement, obviously, is sort of there in the literature of Freud and people like Norman O. Brown who followed him. And I'm always very conscious of that uh, when I'm uh, trying to get my dog to poop and I say, do your business now. Do your business. Anyway, thank you, Stefan Mariansky, Education Director at the Freud Museum in London. Our wonderful interpreters are holding up pretty well over there, I think, but we're about to take them on a thrill ride they haven't been on yet. I'm not even going to try to make any jokes here. I mean, they basically write themselves. Today's show was pushed out by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Colonel Tom Park. And now, back to Colin. We are so lucky to have back on the show Mary Roach, one of the world's leading popular science writers. Her most recent book is Grunt, which would really be a good name for a book about constipation. However, that's not what it's about. Her most recent book is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. And she's the author, more relevantly to us, of Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, which is why we are talking to her today. Mary Roach, we're so excited to have you once again. I'm so excited to be back. You tend to, in your books, explore the extreme ends uh, of various questions and very uh, various dilemmas and maladies and stuff like that. In Gulp, you're kind of interested in very specifically the question is, at what point does constipation become life-threatening? What did you learn about that? Exactly. And this all started with a visit to the Mütter Museum, where they have in a glass case, beautifully lit, um, sort of a vitrine, I think is what they call it, this uh, enormous distended colon. It's called a megacolon. And, and this is this is what happens when things back up fatally. Uh, and in the, in the, it's usually like two or three people just sort of reverently standing there staring at this gigantic. It is bigger around than my waist. Uh, it's like 28 inches around. And I uh, heard that Elvis Presley had had a, a megacolon. And so this is what got the ball rolling. And indeed, if you if you've got that condition and you're trying to deal with it by pushing really 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 hard, uh, you can go down the road of what is called hideously defecation associated sudden death. That's when constipation turns fatal. And apologies to anybody who just sort of can't handle all this stuff. I'm really <laughs> sorry about that, but that's what the sh this is part of what the show is all about. So we just have to face that fact. There's so many things to say about this, but maybe just to go back to the megacolon. And as you say, this is like this huge, terrifying-looking thing that's like almost the size of a person, right? The case is two, three feet long and a couple feet high. I mean, it's a major highlight of that part of the Mütter Museum. It's not just like a little thing in the corner with the bracelet made of hemorrhoids and the other oddities you'll find <laughs> in the Mütter Museum. Uh, it is really a showcased item. It's huge. It's huge. And you can't... And I've seen photographs of the poor man who had this, there's photographs of him, medical photographs, where uh, he's standing there. He's a little skinny guy, but he looks like he's pregnant with triplets. It's an enormous, and it's 
horrible because the colon starts to push the other organs out of the way and it becomes difficult to breathe and yeah, it's just a bad situation all around. So this is one of these things that you don't hear about very much because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to have it listed as the cause of death. Mary Roach, you did, I, I, I feel like in the reading, it seems as though you found that maybe more people die from aspects of this than one might ordinarily guess. That's right. It's not just, I mean, the megacolon and Elvis Presley had this condition. There, there is a, a genetic abnormality that can cause it, but it's also tends to happen, uh, people who are bedridden, having to use a bedpan, and sometimes uh, the drugs that they're on, like painkillers, can slow things down as well in the gut. So these, and, and a bedpan, to, to try to move your bowels while lying down in bed using a bedpan, it's just not a natural position. So people tend to push too hard. And uh, it's enough of a risk that folks who are in the ICU with a heart condition will be put on a stool softener as a safety measure. So it does it does happen. And it's this situation where somebody's pushing really hard and it sets off this thing called the Valsalva maneuver where you're pushing and pushing and it it causes a spike and a drop in blood pressure and uh, that, that your body's trying to get things back to normal and it, you can end up in an arrhythmia, a heart arrhythmia that can be fatal and that's what happened with Elvis. Right. So we should say that you're yeah. on the one hand you're straining and then the other hand when you stop straining you relax and there's a surge of blood when you relax which can dislodge a clot. In your book you say in a 1991 yeah. study found that over a 3-year period 25% of the deaths from pulmonary embolism at one Colorado hospital were defecation associated. That ought to give a person pause. Yeah, that's right. It could be the, the clot dislodging or the arrhythmia. There's two there's two ways to die. <laughs> Constipation. Yeah. So as you investigated very specifically the case of Elvis Presley, one of the things that you found out right away was that, I think these are your words, constipation ran his life. Yeah, I was very sad. I paid a visit to his longtime doctor, Dr. Nicopolis, and he said that he he himself has since passed away, but he said it was it was very sad. He had to kind of manage Elvis's appearances on stage because there were a lot of efforts made to move things along and you never knew exactly when that would kick in and he might be on stage and have to leave the stage and Dr. Nick was his nickname. Dr. Nick would always have two or three boxes of fleets enemas on the tour bus. It was a constant and kind of horrible presence in Elvis Presley's life. Yeah, you say that uh, people who go to Graceland often marvel at the master bathroom, which has, you know, a TV set and stuff like that. And that's not simply uh, a statement of opulence, right? This is, in fact... Right. A... Part of it was that he spent a lot of time in there, as anybody who deals with chronic constipation does. Uh, so there was, yeah, television, there were books. It was a very lush and padded throne. It was a, it was a, it was a place he spent a fair amount of time and, and was appointed to reflect that. If you think we haven't ventured far enough into a weird area so far, we're about to venture even deeper into this because uh, obviously one's ability to move one's bowels is all probably tied up in toilet training and one's relationship with one's parents or whoever it was that finally got around to toilet training us. But with Elvis, we're into a, like a completely different area, which is that apparently this is a was a problem which for him stretched back to childhood and that his mother, Gladys, well, I'll let you pick up the story, Mary Roach. What did his mother, Gladys, have to do? 
This was something that I overheard somebody who was at one of the, it wasn't actually the megacolon at the Muter Museum, it was a, a different one, and, and the curator told me she overheard someone talking about uh, Elvis having this condition, and that as a child, his mother had to manually disimpact, I believe is the medical term. And that's something that if you look back in the history, uh, the medical, old medical journals under impaction and disimpaction, uh, we're not talking about just a finger, which I think was the case with Elvis's mother, but actually sometimes surgeons uh, reaching the entire hand in there and like, sort of pulling out the, the clog. There was just some truly astounding approaches to impaction. And again, this is one person saying this. I wasn't able right. this to speak to Priscilla Presley, wanted not even to speak to Dr. Nick about this. So I can't verify that beyond a person saying that while gazing at a megacolon and saying his mother had to manually disimpact him. So this is something I right. can't fact check that. But right. It's non-canonical and possibly apocryphal, but so make of it what you uh, what you want. You know, when we talk about this level of impaction, we're talking about things in some cases, and I think this um, might have come out as, so to speak, at, at Elvis Presley's autopsy, stuff that had been in there for like four months. Yeah, exactly. And the longer material, to use a nice euphemism, the longer material sits in there, the drier it gets and the harder it gets. And then, of course, the harder it is to get it out because it's not malleable. You don't get that lovely, what is it they call the Bristol stool scale, like a sausage or snake, smooth and long. You don't have that. You've got like kind of a rock. And in fact, that's what was discovered at Elvis Presley's autopsy. It gets very hard. It's just, you know, not something that's easily going to come out a small opening. So Mary Roach, Elvis wasn't the first person to be uh, constipated or obstipated, uh, to use the, I think, the extreme term of this, and neither was Martin Luther. Uh, constipation has probably been with us as long as uh, eating and defecating has. What did you learn about the history of treating this? I mean, what, what did people do about it? <laughs> Some kind of incredible things. Uh, on the, the lighter end of it, you had medical gymnastics, which was something uh, wherein there'd be... A, a professional of sorts who would be stroking the colon, just kind of trying to rhythmically, uh, yeah, medical gymnastics, uh, to sort of the colon stroke the, the offending object along. There were also a couple of cadaver studies where the researcher would have a cadaver in the anatomy lab, essentially, and people gathered around watching. And there was one of them, one of these people was a believer in just putting a lot of water up there and trying to flush it out. And this this description of when the pressure was let off and they opened up the rectum, there was a, a spout two feet high of water sort of coming out of the cadaver. That's an image that's kind of hard to get out of your get out of your mind. You could also kind of address it from the other end with live patients. Having people sometimes they have, have patients swallow lead shot or actually mercury and then roll the patient around to try to use these bits of metal to break up the obstruction. Uh, in one case, seven pounds of metal. Not a good thing to do because it would all tend to gather in one spot and then like weigh down the segment of the colon and make things worse. My favorite by far was the physician Thomas Seidenham. And I couldn't figure out why this was something that he recommended for an impacted bowel, but he said to have um, a live kitten 
kept continually lying on the naked belly for two or three days, a live kitten. And I don't know if that was to warm things up, to kind of make you feel happier and hope that it would clear up on its own, or maybe the kitten was doing some sort of kneading, you know how kittens sort of knead. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that was it. There, there was no explanation. It was just uh, something that he recommended. It's certainly the nicest one. It's the most, <laughs> you know, I mean, it certainly beats the one where they passed the galvanic current. Uh, oh, yeah, the, the, galvanic, the galvanic current was, uh, this, was, this was a period of time when electricity was like, oh, let's try that for everything. Exactly. And they went, there was there, and someone in the audience, when the, the, the researcher was presenting his paper, this is the 1800s. At some point, I think I'd have to look up the date. But someone raised, you know, someone in the the audience uh, in the amphitheater said, "Well, was it? How effective was it?" And the guy goes, "Effective? I could hardly get out of the way in time." (laughs) Again, an image that's hard to erase from your mind. Yeah, and and then the maybe the I mean, there's nothing blunter, I suppose, than making somebody swallow lead shot to knock it out of down there. So, but maybe the most primitive is just slinging the fighting a big tall powerful, muscular, orderly, and just kind of <laughs> slinging the person over that orderly's shoulder? Yeah, that was another approach. Just swing him over the shoulder, kind of docile him around. Horseback riding, also a nice one. And I noted that Elvis Presley at Graceland, there's a, there's a stable that he uh, he enjoyed horseback riding. I have no way of knowing that that was something that he did in order to help with his constipation. But, but anyway, horseback riding was also suggested as a way to kind of jostle things around and hopefully break them up. Right. Actually, one of the things that is, I think, is dealt with in a footnote, but that there's an expression that uh, I will now euphemize uh, that you can knock the poop out of somebody. And you actually did, I think, find a gastroenterologist who'd been a former football player who actually claimed that that had happened to him at least once in his life, right? Yes. It, it, was, it was some kind of a tackle that literally did knock that out of him. Right. The mean Joe Green had actually tackled him so hard that he had to go change his underwear in the locker room. So, all right, Mary Roach, uh, author of many things. Uh, Grunt would have been a more appropriate title, as I said, but Stiff is yet yet another one of the, I think you were on for that book. But uh, Mary Roach, in this case, author of Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Constipation The poop won't leave my butt It's just stuck up there It's a terrible sensation, constipation.